All right, welcome to another episode of Catholic Mindset, where we create Catholic content for Catholics. Today we have Dana Nygaard. She is a Catholic psychotherapist, speaker, and author of 365 Dates to Renew Your Christian Marriage. How are you, Dana? I'm wonderful now that I'm talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. We're excited to learn about some of these 365 date ideas. And so to, you know, for all sorts of individuals, I'm sure, but for marriage specifically. So I look forward to that. Thanks. Um, before we begin, would you mind leading us in prayer? Oh, I'd love to lead us in prayer. All right. So in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We thank you for being here with us. We thank you for your generosity, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your guidance, for your wisdom. And we ask that everyone who hears this podcast, that their lives be touched, dear Lord, that their hearts be touched, and that they grow closer to you. And we love you, and we adore you, and we need you. In your holy name we pray, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So we start here with a question. Okay. We picked up by interviewing the Mercenarian sisters. Um, is what does your heart desire the most? Okay, great question. Um, my heart's desire the most is to evangelize for Christ. So I love being able to work with people if it's in my private practice or if it's during a retreat or a speaking engagement to help them grow their relationship in Christ. And that's through faith, that's through hope, and through what I like to call clarity understanding what is he saying and then how to integrate uh, mental health into that that's what that's what i'm about awesome for for those that don't know what is psychotherapy okay no great question okay so psychotherapist so my the technical term for what i do is i'm an lpc which in the state of texas is licensed professional counselor it's just easier to use catholic psychotherapist because people understand it. They don't think I'm some other type of massage therapist or something. So it's helping people who are struggling with some sort of mental health issue. It could be anxiety, depression, boundary issues, um, self-esteem issues, and to help them work through it. I specifically use cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which helps people to change their mindset because we often look at things with a certain lens and we think, oh, this is what it is. But actually, we're looking at it through a very skewed lens. And so the type of work I do helps people to break out of that. And it actually literally, not just figuratively, but literally changes the brain and the neural pathways and the brain. There's over 500 research studies to support it. And then with couples, when I see them in my private practice, I use what's called Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. It's, I think, the most highly researched, the best marriage um, therapy that's out there. But it is secular. And so I fuse it and look at everything through a Catholic lens. Awesome. And how, for how long have you been uh, practicing? So I taught for a long time. I taught for 16 years. And at the end of my career, I taught psychology. And so everyone thought I was like a little miniature psychologist. I'm like, no, I know just enough to be dangerous. So I decided to actually go and learn how to take the information I knew and how to actually help people with it. Just, just giving them head knowledge. And so since 2012 is when I began seeing clients. And I've been in private practice for I don't even know how many years now. And I just love it. It's the best second career ever. And what kind of people do you work with? No, great question. So I only work with adults. I'm trained to work with people as young as three years old, but that's not where God was calling me. So I work with adults. They have to be 18 or older. And I really work with 
any and everyone in that range, but it's a lot of boundaries, anxiety, depression, being stuck in life, a lot of family issues. I do a lot of that, but I no longer see adolescence, even though I'm trained in that. It's just that's where God was not calling me to do that. And talking about the mindset, I'm thinking about that. I mean, one of the reasons I, I named my show Catholic Mindset is because I was I was watching Bishop Barron. He was describing how we're created in the likeness and image of God, including yeah. our minds. So I was like, oh, wow, that really mm-hmm. lived. Been reading this little book about um, the imitation of Christ, you know, how I guess in the future, how one can go about to do that. Yeah. Well, well, there are some, um, you know, you can always, of course, you know, find a therapist. There's a lot of books out there on on CBT. I think if you're educated in the faith, even if you read something and you think, oh, that little piece of that, maybe that book, that last chapter, it doesn't go with our faith. Most people know enough, unless maybe they're a brand new convert to know, I'm not going to go to that length, right? I'm not going to do that thing. But it really is changing your mindset. So example, I give perspective of clients when they call me because I have to make sure we're a good fit for each other is I said, like, we have wonderful neighbors, but let's pretend one day I wave at a neighbor and they don't wave back. I could come in and tell my precious husband, David, wow, um, neighbor doesn't like me anymore, doesn't want to be friends anymore. And he may ask me, what are you basing that off of? Well, I waved and she didn't wave back. Well, what if she didn't wave back because she just heard her husband scream at the house he had fallen off a ladder? Maybe she ran to the house and didn't wave at me because she got a sharp pain in her foot and had to go sit down, right? So that's what we call mind reading, not in a psychic way, like on reading what's on your mind, but just we think we know what people think, but we don't. Because hasn't haven't you ever had an experience in your life where someone's come up to you and said, and usually it's not very pleasant, I know what you're thinking. And they tell you and you go, you look around like, what? No, no, that's not what I'm thinking. Of. No, I know it is. Oh my gosh, right? They're assuming those things. So there's roughly 12 of these different ways that we look at people and situations. And it's almost always through a neg- negative filter. Because, I mean, who is the ruler of this world? It's Satan. He wants her to be strife. He wants her to be miscommunication. And it happens in marriages all the time. And then that's the domestic church that's going to filter down to the children. So by learning and recognizing what we call cognitive thought distortions are the formal name. And then people can realize, oh, I'm doing that. Out of all of them, these are the few I'm falling into the most and catching themselves and backing out of it. And there's a, there's a way to look at a situation. There's a set of questions that you can ask yourself. And by the t- like at the top of the list, when someone's asking themselves these questions, they're probably like through the roof with emotions. But as they get through the questions and they're writing in their answers, because by writing it, it connects both sides of the brain. So it's better than just reading it and thinking of responses. So by the time the person gets to the bottom of it, they're most likely going to be much more calmer, less emotional about it, and more rational. But at first, we tend to run around with chickens with like chickens with our heads cut off and we get so upset. And in the end, it's like, oh, it really wasn't that bad. So it's a way to train yourself to stop doing that. Like, let's say if I said, um, let's say you asked me to go to the store and get milk and eggs, and I came home with milk and butter. Oh my God, I'm so stupid, and I'm calling myself names, and I, I should have gotten that. I can't believe I didn't get it. Instead, I could say, I, I could have gotten eggs. I'll go back and get eggs in a minute. So should is very shaming. And so it's working through things like that, because I see, you know, in the fullness of the church, there's, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters do have some truth in their church, but they're missing out on the fullness. 
for me, the fullness of counseling, Catholic counseling is going to be mind, body, and then spirit. So mind is the CBT that I talked about cognitive behavioral therapy for the body. It's what can I do when I'm feeling anxious? How can I calm myself down during the day versus how do I calm myself down if it's, let's say, 2 a.m. and I don't want to sharpen my focus. I need to go back to sleep and get these thoughts that are just ruminating out of my head. So that's the body part I help people with. And the spiritual part, we have over 2,000 years of Catholic church history that we can speak to, and I'm trained in deliverance and healing ministry, and that can also be really helpful. So that way they get the fullness of it. Awesome. So I feel like we can keep talking. I have like more questions on this aspect, but I want to... Ask me anything. I want to tap into your book. Uh, dates to renew. Yeah. Every, there it is. The Christian. There it is. <laughs> so what uh, what can we find in this book? The 365 yeah. Dates idea. Uh, so if somebody went on with their with their spouse, if they went on one date a week, it would take them over seven and a half years to actually finish the book. My husband and I, we because I didn't let him hear all the questions when I was writing it because I wanted to experience the book myself with my husband. So there are three dates or three questions per date, okay? So there's a date and there's three questions. And the book builds from, so at the beginning of the date, that question is a warm-up. then it gets a little bit deeper. Maybe you're at a restaurant, you're talking with your spouse, but you're not so concerned that the people around you would overhear. And then the last question gets deeper so that if you're maybe, you're back home after the date, you're having a nice glass of wine in your patio. But then for the front of the book, through all the dates, it deepens this way. The subheading here is, increasing your emotional intimacy one question at a time. And there are faith questions throughout it. The purple is the Catholic edition. I don't, sorry, there's my ring light showing up. Uh, there's a red edition. That's for our Protestant brothers and sisters. So let me tell you how the book came about. And then I could tell you why I also have the Protestant edition. So my husband and I, my precious husband, David, anyone who knows David knows I'm married to a, a living saint walking on this earth. And we like to go on antiquing trips. So one time I went to just a generic bookstore and I bought a couple of, um, again, secular books on questions you can ask your spouse when you're in a relationship. So we had fun with some of them, but every once in a while, we, you know, he'd be driving, he drives most of the time. And I would say, okay, babe, I'm about to read you a question, but just know we're going to discuss why we're not going to discuss this question because it would be something that would go absolutely against our religious values. It was offensive as a Catholic. I couldn't believe some of the things that were in these books. And I didn't want him to have a wreck. So I would always warn him like, hey, I'm about to throw something crazy at you here. So he wouldn't be like, what are you talking about? And I said at that point, just off the cuff, I said, we need a book that is safe for Catholic couples. So I start doing my research. There was no book like it. So I created it because I felt that the Holy Spirit led me to it. The other part of creating that is when I work with couples, one of the first questions that I ask is, so tell me, how did you meet? What I'm hoping will happen is they'll look at each other sitting here on the couch, and I'm hoping they'll be like, well, I saw her across the quad. I thought, oh, my gosh, she's so cute. And then, you know, she thought, oh, my gosh, she's so handsome or he's so funny. And I was working with one couple, and they, they just looked around the room a lot. They'd be like, oh, well, how, I don't, I don't. I thought, okay, let me move on. So I go, so what was your first impression of each other? Again, crickets, nothing. Um, tell me about one of the dates you've been on. Couldn't answer anything. But yet they had a quite a large size 
biological family that they had given birth to these children. So they apparently at some time got together. And I thought it was the saddest thing because they didn't know each other emotionally. And so how do you turn to that person and want to trust them with your heart when they don't really know you? So the book is everything from lighthearted questions, deeper faith questions, questions about your marriage, questions about your childhood. Some are funny and hysterical. And my hope is that people answer that question, but then I hope they go off into different bunny trails. Hey, it reminds me of a story. Wow, I never knew that story, honey. I've never told you that. Never. That is fact. That's what that's what I want people to do, to bond and to talk. So that's how the book came about. The reason why there's a Protestant edition in both books, the Protestant and the Catholic, come in, uh, they're also translated as Spanish, is for a Protestant one, it would have been too hard to call it. 365 dates to renew your non-Catholic Christian marriage. Okay, it's just too much. It's just too much. So the purple is the Catholic edition, and it does have an imprimatur from Bishop Burns of Dallas. So you know what you're reading is, again, safe. So what happened with the Protestants, I actually wrote it, the Protestant version, because of my Protestant girlfriends that said, but we want our version. I was like, okay, I love you. I'll do that. But here's what happened, because God has a bigger plan than our silly idea. So I've been at so many speaking engagements where women will come up and say, my husband's very anti-Catholic. He barely lets me come here to like this mom's meeting or this church event where, you know, I'm there speaking. So I can't bring a Catholic book in the house. Well, the books are almost identical. So a little bit of the language is slightly different. Like in the Catholic one, there's more um, God. In the Protestant one, there's more the Lord. It's just a common phraseology, right? But there's no heresy in the Protestant edition. So I don't ever ask of, well, when were you saved? Because we don't believe in when saved, always saved, right? So they're just, it's just a slight tweaking, but there's nothing about like the saints in there that would send that, you know, anti-Catholic spouse off the deep end. So I think that's really why God had me write it. My girlfriends were happy with it, but I think that's really what it was all about is to help people to, to still be able to connect with their spouse without sitting them running through the, you know, door screaming. Yeah, so that both books are translated into Spanish. I had a wonderful translator. Then I had someone look at the translation because how would I know if it was a good job or not, huh, right? And so then I had another very wise woman who I'm actually involved in some ministry work with, and she did all the double checking. It was beautifully done. And so on my website, the DanaNygard.com or my, my uh, counseling website, the books can be ordered on there. And whenever I do a speaking engagement, a lot of times... Like when we have a marriage retreat, whatever diocese or whatever parish is hiring us, they will often buy the books at my discounted rate. And then that way everyone gets one as part of their their gift. Each couple, you know, is their retreat fee. Everyone gets one. Or if I do a speaking engagement, I bring extras with me because a lot of times people want to buy them for wedding gifts, their son's getting married or something like that. So I always have a stack with me. So can you, uh, I mean, I have to ask, can you, yeah, yeah. you show us a couple of the questions? Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me, let me pull out. Okay. I'm just going to randomly open this. Okay. Date 202. Here we go. Okay. And there, the format is ready. Let me, can I do that? Ready, set, go. The Holy, I couldn't figure out how to organize it. And the Holy Spirit um, was so generous and said, um, show me one day a stoplight. And I was like, that's it. Ready, set, go, because it's a warm-up. Okay, so here's date 202. Ready question. 
If money were no object, how would you design our dream house? And it's so much fun to hear, like, that's why you would put that in? Like, that's brilliant. It's just so cool. Okay, here's the set question, like the medium level question. What is the best surprise you have ever received? It could have been in your marriage. It could have been when they were 10 years old. And again, if that leads them down the bunny trail or talk about a bunch of cool surprises in their life, that's all the better. Okay, here's the go question. Are our different views on money hurting our relationship? And there's room for notes. So that way people, I can't, there you go. That way they can write things down. And I know one couple that um, as they did do the, they've been working through the book, what they've done is they've written in their answers. Now there are a couple about, you know, the romantic side of their life. So I'm hoping that they kind of tempered that to not scar their children someday, but they put it together so that their grown children someday could have a record of how much mom and dad love each other. And again, even things about their own childhood when they were little. There's one in here about, you know, are you too embarrassed as an adult to run after the ice cream truck? My answer, no. I want me some ice cream. <laughs> There's no such thing as being too embarrassed. Uh, let's see, date 267, ready question. What is something you are glad you did once but likely will never do again? Set, are you satisfied with, you, with who you have invited into your life? Hmm, maybe some good people, maybe some not so good people. And the go question what is a treasured memory from the past year? And the book just is filled with these. And again, faith-based questions are woven throughout the book. That's super cool. Thanks. It's so much fun. I like the component of letting people write their answers because then they can leave it, like you said, and then their uh -huh. kids can read it. And I yeah. think it's yeah. nice because like even even now, as, as I grow older, my parents... Our, they're always going to be my parents, but now <laughs> we are, you know, we're all adults and time yep, to yep. get to know them as they were realizing uh -huh. that my parents were, you know, in their early 20s when they first had us. And then <laughs> grabbing that as an experience, I'm like, wow, if I don't know anything now, I can only imagine <laughs> trying to raise two kids in their early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's such fun. It's such fun. Well, and you you know, some of the questions obviously wouldn't be appropriate to like, hey, mom and dad, what are your thoughts on these things? It may be too personal. But a lot of them, you could use them as family questions. And, you know, one of the things that I love, one of the talks I give is uh, at a lot of churches is how to pursue your spouse. Or if it's a women's only group, you know, like a mom's group, it'll be like how to pursue your husband. And the, the idea of asking your spouse, hey, honey, do you want to go on a date night? You mentioned recently you wanted to see this movie or something. It feels great to be pursued. So since my husband, David, he would he would walk in the room and my editor and I would be on, you know, the computer, like on Zoom, would be tweaking the book. And he'd walk in and I would just watch him. And he'd be like, what? And I'd be like, go ahead. You, you got to go now, babe, because I didn't want to hear what we were talking about. So we have a copy of the book in the car. And as we travel, we do our little antique weekings, which we love, or if we're going to retreat or something, we'll bring the book. So typically, my husband is the one who who drives most of the time. And so uh, we get out of town, you know, the traffic isn't crazy. And I'll say, hey, do you want to do some questions? And 99% of the time, he goes, yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so we'll do the questions. Well, one time, for whatever reason, I'm driving. And so we get out of town, and I'm just trying not to get lost because I'm really bad without the GPS. And my husband says, would you like to do the questions? He wasn't looking at me, but this is my reaction. I was like, yeah, oh my God. Because he was pursuing me. 
He wanted to know me deeper. He wanted us to talk about our marriage at a deeper level. It was like he just asked me to prom. It was the sweetest thing. And I wrote the book. I know what all the questions are. But I was so excited. So when we when I first came up with this idea for the book, we sent out the book galleys for different people to review. I sent it to some single people, people that were in dating relationships, newlyweds, couples who had been married every age range from 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 years. I sent it to everyone. And I was a little nervous, like, what are the people who have been married forever going to say? Like, Dana, please. Everyone said, I didn't think there was anything left to talk about. And we had the best conversations. I was like, yes. So the Holy Spirit helped me write it. And that's why I can brag on it. I can see it. I can see it and use now. Like I, I'm, I'm currently dating and sometimes, you know, we, we see each other on a regular basis every day. So, um, it's, it's, a it's, it's, it's a blessing to be able to be with that, to get to know someone on a regular basis. Some people have long distance relationships. Some people work too much. In our case, we see each other every day. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, we have moments of silence, which they're okay. Mm-hmm. You know, or we're watching the yeah. thing is we eat, but, or when we mm-hmm. go out on a date, you know, we try to put our phones down and we, we try mm-hmm. to keep that rule and, and engaging conversation is the same thing. You know, what did you do today yeah. or today? Uh-huh. Sometimes I think like uh, we do need to change it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what this does. And it's so cool to learn things about your spouse that they haven't been hiding, but it's like, I've never told you this. And, and it just helps, I think, to understand why maybe our spouse reacts to certain things. Oh, because they have this old memory in their past. And that that's part of why they react the way they do. But that's why maybe they got upset or that's why they got so quiet. And it's really fascinating. We've had the best time with it. And again, I know what all the questions are, but it's still so great to just discuss it with, with my spouse. And with I have a girlfriend who I'm actually going to see this weekend on retreat. And she reviewed it as just a single woman not dating will probably never get married at this point in life. That's where she feels like God has called her. And she goes, Dana... I had the best time asking myself these questions. I used it as a self-reflective, you know, like journaling moment for myself in a way to grow spiritually. So that was really cool to hear too. I think it's a great, uh, it's a, it's a great book. It's a great initiative and I'm sure it can help Thank a lot you. of people like it already has. So I, I definitely like it. And I thought it was cool when I saw you, by the way, Dana and I met uh-huh. on the Instagram, I reached, I DM'd. Idea. She responded, and I when I was looking at her her page and everything that she uh, did, I saw her book as well, and I thought it was pretty cool. And I was like, "Hey, let's talk about your book and and the things that you do." And and she said, "Yeah, let's do it." And now we're here. Perfect. Tell me, tell me about the speaking. You tapped a little bit on your speaking, um, Robert. Mm-hmm. What What are some of the topics that you cover? Mm-hmm. So um, we, my husband and I do a lot of marriage enrichment retreats, you know, Friday night, Saturday morning sort of thing. But generally, it's a one-day retreat, and it's all on how can you look at the Ten Commandments, but through the lens of marriage. And we do have, we have gotten church approval for these, because obviously we're tweaking them slightly because we're looking at it, you know, through the lens of marriage. And so the idea is, let's say I struggled, I'll just make this up, with commandment of marriage one and two. Or let's say my husband struggles with, you know, seven and eight. If I work on one and two and he works on seven and eight, aren't we going to have a better marriage? But the idea is we have to take an examination of conscience about how are we as a spouse? Do I gossip about my spouse? Do I say horrible things? You can go up to 
anyone in the Dallas Metroplex and ask, what does Dana think of David? And if they know me or know him, they'll say, oh my gosh, they're so in love. You can't repeat back a negative thing I've ever said about that man in public or vice versa because we don't gossip. But that's one of the commandments is to not do that to your spouse. And then through woven throughout the Ten Commandments of the day or different activities to bring the couple together closer. There's different prayer-based activities. And we just have the best times. We offer those across the United States, which is so much fun. Years ago, God gave me what I thought was a prophetic vision. And you don't know if it's prophetic until it happens. (laughs) Otherwise, it's just, I'm really creative, baby. And the Holy Spirit showed that we'd be traveling across the country. And so that's happened, which is so much fun. And then we have a two-day retreat called Cana Communication. And it's all day, two days. And it's on How do you communicate based off of research? Like, what are the healthiest ways to communicate? And then um, we also have an engagement retreat, and then we have a convalidation retreat. So we tend to do those more locally because most parishes have something, but we, we do offer those too. And then also I speak to a lot of bombs groups. So there's the one on, you know, how do you pursue your husband? I'm sorry, you said, I'm in, sorry, like, engagement yeah. retreat and co-validation. What does that mean? Sorry, convalidation. That is when, that is when someone, some people call it like having your marriage blessed by the church. It's not the technically like the correct church language, but it's the idea that they have married outside of the church, but they need to have their marriage brought into the Catholic church. And so it's it's a um, it's a ceremony that they go through with the priest, and they can invite people. They just have to have two witnesses, and usually there's a class that the diocese will want the the couple to go through. And it's just it's no different than someone who's engaged for the first time. Do you understand what marriage means in the Catholic Church? Do you agree to do the following? Do you? And so we 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 lead those retreats also. But usually that's more of a local thing. But we're happy to take those anywhere across. The U.S. and we've gotten some really great reviews on making them fun. And with the, especially with the engagement retreat, we follow everything the church says that has to be covered in it, all the topics. But I also added some mental health components because so much of what a person brings to the marriage is that baggage from their own childhood. And so we do some inner child work also, which makes a lot of fun. And then I have for moms groups, we do a lot of things like, you know, how to pursue your spouse through intentional date night conversations. Like, what does it look like? How does your spouse want to be pursued? They don't want it just to be, they're the ones always asking you. And then I have a different version of that when I work with couples. So we do that one. I have a a fun one called What's in Your Emotional Backpack. And it's all that junk that we tend to carry and Satan wants us keeping it zipped up. Or some people, theirs is unzipped. Like, it's almost like the emotions are falling out and they... They, you know, emotionally vomit over everyone that they don't. And it's like, lady, I just spent, you know, the bus two minutes ago. Like, why are you telling me your life story? Like, please don't do that. And so it's how do you unpack it and how do you give it to Jesus for him to heal? And then you can take whatever this painful memory is. You can put it on a shelf. And then if someday you meet someone like, let's say you're the lovely woman that you're dating, you can say, hey, I've been through a thing. I want to tell you about it, but I can put it back versus you don't understand why I get so angry or so depressed or so upset or so agitated. It's because Satan wants us to keep our mouth shut and we can't get healing from Jesus if we don't talk to him about it. And so it's, it's a real fun one. I do things on people pleasing, all sorts of stuff. I have one for, um, 
for dioceses, uh, for parishes. I'm like, what do you do if you get a phone call and the, you work at the parish and the man or woman calling you is hysterical about their marriage is falling apart? What do you say? What do you not say? So I also have things that I can help um, the church with related to how do you deal with that when you get that phone call and what are things you can say, what are things you shouldn't say, and how much of their marriage is your responsibility because you picked up the phone. Okay. What are what are some of the most common things you see people have in their emotional backpack? Vows that they didn't realize they took somewhere in their growing years. You know, do some vow that's really unhealthy. I vow to never allow anyone to get close to me because I was hurt by, you know, this person in my life before. They know they made that vow. And then later they wonder, I wonder why my dating life isn't working. Hello. But a lot of people make these unintentional. So let's pretend that there's a little girl, she fell and she broke her arm. And grandma's talking with mom outside in the hallway. And what if the little girl overhears grandma say, oh, you know, little Susie, I bet she breaks a, a thousand bones before she's grown. If that little girl absorbs that and goes, wow, I probably am. She's probably going to be wild and jumping off of stuff and getting hurt because she already accepted the vow that she would she's going to break bones or she becomes agoraphobic and doesn't ever want to leave the home because no if I go out and do things ride a horse I could break a bone and I can't do that so we often take these things on without realizing it but in that moment we've actually made an agreement with evil and we didn't even know it it's not like someone said hey the devil's hanging out across the street do you want to go I'd be like no because I don't want to start a relationship. That's why I don't say things like, get behind these Satan. I'm not Jesus. That means I would be talking to Satan. I don't want a conversation with Satan. Because once I open that door, he's going to be like, hot dang, we got a relationship. And he's going to step through it. And I'm going to have all sorts of horrible things happen. And so a lot of people take on things when they're little. And a lot of the other thing I see is when people have been mistreated, and they'll say things like, um, my daddy, I was always a daddy's girl. It's like a 40-year-old woman. I was always a daddy's girl. Okay, well, tell me about that. Oh, my daddy's the most loving, kind, thoughtful man on earth. I'm thinking, awesome. And then out of the next side of her mouth, she'll say, well, he beat me mercilessly throughout my life when I would make mistakes. I one time wet my pants at six, and my dad beat me to an inch of my life and then call me a dirty little blood, whatever. So part of my job as a therapist is, is, is to say, huh, and it's to help them think of the thoughts, not for me to tell them what to think, but huh, how do you reconcile that you have, a, and I will use their words back to them, a loving, generous, kind-hearted father. How do you reconcile that with beat you without mercy? Huh, how, huh, I, I don't, how, how do you do that? And they'll go, it gets them going because it's like, but it's interesting. I, I've, I've seen you for three months every week for three months. And you've, you've always said you're a daddy's girl. I can't remember any stories that you've told me yet about being a daddy's girl. There are plenty. Okay, I'd love to hear one. No. Well, what about in sixth grade? No. Okay, well, in high school, no. Because they so desperately want to believe something and they're in denial. How are you going to get better and healthier until you own it, right? And I see a lot of codependents. They'll say, um, oh, you know, let's say it's a man. My mother did X and such, all these horrible things to them. And I'll say, wow, that's, 
that's technically a, a, abuse. That's actually emotional abuse and physical and spiritual abuse based on what you just told me. Now, 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 don't you get confused. My mother was a good woman. Wow. I didn't say like your mother's a piece of, but they will, that's that codependent flag waving its ugly head saying, because if not, they would just accept it like, oh my gosh, it was abusive. I just thought my mother was just a little needy. No, honey, your mother was abusive. That's cruel. And so part of it is to disavow people of their preconceived notions, but they have to come to it. And if I say like, well, how do you reconcile that they don't have an answer? We just move on. They're not ready for it then. And if they pray and they ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to them, the Holy Spirit will help them. But I think the Holy Spirit knows, and this is my opinion, but knows to do these things in increments. If not, I think most of us would be curled up in a corner in the fetal position sucking our thumbs, right? Who hasn't been through? Everyone's been through stuff, right? But it's what happened. And then it's a big part of that whole connection with, you know, the demonic and spiritual warfare there is forgiveness, because I may ask someone, hey, uh, you know, you mentioned your Uncle John. He hurt you when you were little. He sexually abused you. Have you forgiven him? I'll never forgive him. Okay. Most people don't say that. Most people will go, no, I, don't, I can't think of a soul I haven't forgiven. Okay. Well, in kindergarten, let's go to kindergarten. Was anyone ever mean to you? Oh, the lunch lady? Oh, Miss Henrietta? And I'm making these names up. Oh, she was horrible, humiliating. And a kid named, you know, Johnny the Bull. Okay, Johnny the Bull. We called him that because he would knock us down like he was a bull and he fractured my arm one time. Okay, have you forgiven them? Well, no, Dana, I, have, I haven't thought about them until you just mentioned. I haven't thought about those people in 20 years. Okay, let's go back. Have you forgiven them? Because what does, when, 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 when Jesus is asked, Lord, how do we pray? He teaches us the Our Father. And he doesn't say, unless you forgot it. So cleaning up that dirty, you know, stuff that clings to us, that unforgiveness, that's going to be a big block to someone's healing. And if they can, and it doesn't mean that to call them up. They don't define these people, but just in the name of Jesus, I forgive blank their name for blank the incident, not for abuse, for pulling my hair. Let's do it again for hitting me, for mocking me. And that frees them up and they're just going to receive more grace and that it helps with the whole counseling process. So I don't know how to counsel without faith. I, I have friends that are like Dana, you just secularly. I'm like, my brain doesn't work that way. My brain sees Jesus and everything. And I just, I'm grateful I get to work with people and share and share that. And what about forgiveness of self? Like I, I know that a lot of people go to confession. They get the forgiveness from God, which is in, instant. And then yeah. they still, you know, they're still hitting themselves for those things. Mm -hmm. They don't also forgive themselves as fast as God forgives us. That's right. It's it's so hard. It's it's typically easier to forgive someone else than it is ourselves. And I'm a volunteer therapist with Rachel's Vineyard Dallas. It's just the most amazing ministry. Doctors Kevin and Teresa Burke, incredible people that created this program. And that happens a lot on retreat. Well, I can forgive the doctor. I can forgive the cousin who said, oh, you shouldn't have the abortion. I can forgive the boyfriend, whatever. But they often get stuck on forgiving themselves. And so 
what I say in my private practice, not necessarily a retreat, but what we talk about is in a very gentle way, you know, why do you, why do you think is going on there? And why would you be so special? Yes, you're special in that you're gifted in many ways and you're precious, unique. So, but why would you be so special that you don't fit the mold of forgiveness? And what it goes back to, it's actually pride. It sounds like it's very self-deprecating, but actually it's the sin of pride. I know more than Jesus. I know more than God. Nice. I was about to ask you why you think people don't forgive themselves. It's a pride. I like it. They know more than Jesus. Yes. And when you say it that way, it's like, what? And it blows their mind because that's not what they're expecting. But, and so there are some, there are activities that we can do, you know, on the retreat. And I've even used it with some clients before where if you say to someone like, okay, you go over here and say to, you know, Jane Doe standing in front of you, you say to her, you know, you're not forgiven. Oh, I could, I could never do that. Okay. Well, there's, I keep a little mirror in my office. Go to that mirror right now. Why aren't you forgiving yourself? Right? Because that's what you're saying to yourself all the time. And so counseling is, it's taking in all the five senses, because again, that's how God made us, right? So I have a candle burning in there, right? You know, there's a mirror they can look at. And sometimes we'll even um, change chairs. You go and sit in my therapist chair, and now you're going to speak to you on the couch, and I'll stand off here in the side of the room. And it's amazing the stuff that, that will come out of their mouth as they're being, as they're, they just to do them, put themselves in like in a way out of body experience, it helps break stuff through and they'll say things and they'll be amazed and they'll be crying and amazed. I didn't know I thought that. And then go back now, be you again and speak to that version. I feel forgiven. Five minutes ago, I was sitting over here and I felt like I was stuck on this couch, but now I feel lighter and happier and it's all glory to God. So any wisdom that I have isn't my wisdom. It's wisdom that God has allowed me to have. And so it's the Holy Spirit in that moment helping that person because he doesn't want them carrying that burden around. And if they can't forgive themselves, how are they truly going to be forgiven and live a life of freedom? Because Satan wants the person, whenever we're in a shame cycle and we're feeling really shamed, we want to isolate, run away, and hide. And Satan's like, hot dang, yeah, you're horrible, get away. So whenever someone isolates, that's different than someone being an introvert and needing like handing a little time to unwind after being, you know, with a bunch of people. That's different. But whenever we want to isolate, Satan is afoot. And that's why it's so hard for someone to go on a retreat with post-abortion healing is they're thinking, I can't go there. I can't say these things out loud. And Satan's like, yeah, don't go. So if you if so if if you'll pray for us this weekend on retreat, uh, we can always use prayers because we're both we'll be on retreat this weekend. So I, I I ask you about forgiveness because it's something that comes up in the retreats that we do here oh. down in in Miami, and it's 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 such an important topic. Because and then when you think about it, I'm like sometimes I'm like even with myself, you know, when you encounter these these young adults that can't forgive themselves, and you wonder why, and I'm like, what what can we do to help them more? You know. You mentioned you had an example pre-podcast and we took a break. Yeah, there's, um, so there's this idea that, you know, when we hear about the story about, you know, the lost, you know, sheep, right? And that Jesus goes after them. 
Here's what's so fascinating about that is, and I don't remember which priest I heard speak on this before, so I'm sorry for whoever I'm not giving credit to, but the idea is that that is not the norm for a shepherd to say, hey, I'm going to leave the 99 and go find that one. A shepherd would stay with the 99 and be like, we lost one. But instead, Jesus comes after that lost lamb. And so that's how much he loves us. And that's how much he wants us to forgive. There's no sin that's unforgivable. I have a a client who one time was going through a really tough situation. And I I think she made a very wise choice to avoid a family event because it was just people didn't act nice. And a relative reached out to her and said, that's unforgivable. There's nothing that's unforgivable, right? So it's not like as Catholics, I've heard people say that don't understand the Catholic faith before. They'll say, oh, you Catholics, you just sin and then, oh, I'm going to go to confession. We sin because we're sinful people. We lean towards concupiscence, right? As, as humans, we're going to lean towards sin. But it's not right to be like, I'm going to go rob a bank, then I'm going to go to confession. That's not how it works. We have to truly be repentant of it. And so if you think about how much Jesus loves you, that he would leave 99 to go get just you, that's amazing. And so he needs us to forgive because if not, it's like when someone says, um, um, you look very handsome today. You look very pretty. Um, I love, I love, you know, the way you set the table for dinner, whatever it is. If we can't say thank you and be quiet, but oh no, my sister sets a better table than I do. Really, this is an old suit. I got it at Goodwill for $25. Oh, this dress. We're taking away from them their gift of words. So if we want to be, I want to give people stuff all the time, nice things. I want to give them stuff. I want to give them compliments, affirmations. But if we can't receive it, then we're missing out on part of it. Jesus wants to give you forgiveness. Why would you turn down Jesus? So that's, that's sometimes, it, it, I always have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to me, what would you have me say in this moment, dear Lord? And images will come to me, words will come to me, and later I'll think, okay, I don't know where it came from, but I know where it came from. It came from, it came from him, the Holy Spirit. But out of those different things, some of those are things that can open people up to forgive. Can we can we talk a little bit about that too? Like you mentioned, of course. Before, when you pray for the Holy Spirit to, yeah. to enlighten you and to provide you with yeah. guidance, so how how can we? I guess I'm, I'm sure it's not going to be 100. percent But mm-hmm. how can we trust that comes from the Lord and not from us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm glad one up. Yeah, go ahead. But no, you go ahead. No, that 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 was it. It's like sometimes. Sometimes people, you know, ask you to pray and to like, what does the Lord tell you about this? Uh-huh. And, then, and then sometimes like, I don't, how do, how do I discern or, or I guess feel a certain level of comfort to be like, okay, uh-huh. this, this is, I can feel comfortable, but this is from uh-huh. the Lord and not uh-huh. me or other sources. Uh-huh. Great. So what I, what I like to say to my clients, uh, especially, you know, we're in a private session there is all, maybe I'll receive an image for them or a word. They're talking about whatever, but a word will go through my head and I'll be like, interesting. Why? Like, why? What is that word about? And then they'll keep talking and then maybe that word comes back and they'll keep talking. And then I'll be like, I get that word now. Oh, like you were leading us here. So what I like to say is I'll say, okay, I've received, I could say, let's say a word or I received an image. Okay. I don't say 
I receive something from the Holy Spirit, because who on earth do I think I am that I'm now the mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit? Like, I'm sure there's some bishop out there that would be like, Dana, stop doing that, right? Yeah. So I'll say, so I'm going to share something with you which, if, if you'd like to hear it. 99% of the time they say yes. And then I'll say, okay, so as you were speaking, you mentioned whatever they said, blah, blah, blah earlier. And this word, it's like, for me, it's like it floats by. It's almost like it's in the air. And normally when I say whatever word, they will start to tear up immediately before I can even say, if this resonates with you, then there could be something there. If it doesn't, maybe Dana just has a really creative imagination. Or the person may go, nah, I, I don't know why, you know, whatever, Cupid or whatever the word is, would I, I don't know what that means. It means nothing to me. Okay. Often, I mean, pretty often, the next time I see them, or maybe they'll text me, Dana, oh my gosh, I figured out later, it actually does resonate. Because every once in a while I have someone go, no, but but I don't know how to describe it other than there's something like in my bones telling me, yeah, it's not no, it's yes. And I just sit there and go, oh, okay. And that's when they contact me later and say, oh my gosh, it all makes sense. Or Dana, I can't believe you just said that. Cause they'll be like, I'll say, well, I guess it resonates because you're crying then. Oh, they'll go, yeah, it does resonate. And they'll say, you're the third person in 12 hours to say that to me. Really? And it won't be a word based off of what they said. It's not like they say ham and I say sandwich. It'll be some other word. So one is I check, does it resonate with you? Okay. Again, I'm not his mouthpiece. That's one thing. Okay. And then another is if it comes back. So like if the clients talk about whatever they're talking about, you know, maybe how their week is gone. And then a word flips in my head. I'm literally, I, I will ask the Holy Spirit violently. It's, it's the only time I can actually multitask. Most of us don't multitask well. If we're doing something with our hands and we're watching TV, we either stop doing this to catch the dialogue or we're doing this and we're like, wait, what'd they say? And we have to do it back on the DVR, okay? But it's one of the times I can actually multitask. So I'm hearing everything they're saying and I'll say in my head, Holy Spirit, was that word for me? Was it for them? Like, why did you just give me that word? Like benevolence, forgiveness, joy, puppy, like whatever the word is. And if it keeps floating back, I take it as my job to share it. And so true story. So years ago, and I was, I was given permission to tell this story by this family. So I'm at a prayer event. And so when it, a couple of, actually a little family, uh, parents and two, uh, two daughters, another daughter was at home. So we just want generic prayer, not like prayer for something is wrong. We just want generic prayer. Okay. So I received in my head, and I was the prayer leader of this little prayer team move to the side, let someone else lead it, but keep praying. And so I thought, what? Hey, so-and-so, can you take over? Yep. So I step over to the side and I'm just like, come Holy Spirit, show me. And I received these images and I was arguing with myself in my head. I was thinking, I can't say this out loud. I'm going to sound like a crazy person and they're going to leave here and like throw something at me. Okay. So um, I thought, no, I have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. If that's what this is and not my imagination. So the other people in the group say whatever they, you know, came to them. Do you have anything to share, Dana? I was like, yeah, I do. I said, okay. And so, and I see images like a movie and often the movie will stop. And then after I finish sharing it, the movie starts back up. So then I see the next part. So that happens often with, with how the Holy Spirit works in me. 
So I said to them, and again, I'm feeling so stupid saying this, and I, and I couldn't even look at the the lady, but I was talking to her, not the others. And I said, there's a train. Okay, the minute I said there's a train, boop, I mean, tears pop out of her eyes. She doesn't moisten, pop out. And I thought, here we go, I'm going to go. And again, I have Holy Spirit goosebumps up and down. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Every time I tell this story, God is so good. And I think he gave it to me, the story, to show me that he's allowing me to to use these gifts to to help people I work with. So I said, there's a train. I did my hand. I said, the train is going out of control. She starts crying, hard crying. And you could tell the way the husband was looking at her. He was clued into what was happening. I had no idea. I said, there's a train. It's going out of control. I said, um, then there's a field. There's Jesus. He's wearing white. His hair is down. I know you're on the train. I point to her and I said, but I can't see you, but I know you're on the train. I said, he has his hands out and he says to you, and she's bawling louder now, jump, I'll catch you. And I laugh and I go, so I guess that resonates because you're, you seem to be moved by it. And she's like, yeah, the husband. At this point now, he is crying too. Okay. But you can tell he knows what's happening. Okay. So I'm like, okay, what was, you know, what was that? So she tells this story. She goes, when I was a baby, the story goes, I'm a newborn. I'm in the car with my parents and my father's driving. Mom is in the passenger seat and I'm a newborn. Mom is holding me. They didn't have a car seat. They didn't do that. She was holding her. And the father had gotten too close to some train tracks. The train was speeding, caught the front bumper and was pulling the car along the track okay and i don't remember if they were going to go like around a sharp curve or they were going to like go into like a mountainside but there was something where the father kept trying to wrench the car off to the left and if he didn't do it in the next few moments they would it would have been really bad they probably would have died okay so the father he can't move the car he finally does one more poof the car comes off settles down okay they're okay so as this young woman grew up, she heard the story from her mother, and this girl had been anxious her entire life. So the mother would say, you know what? I think you're anxious. It's from the train. Mom, it's not from the train. What are you talking about? I wouldn't even know that story, but you told me about it, and I was a newborn. Mom, it's not the train. I go, well, I happen to be a Catholic therapist. And I said, what I'm imagining is your parents in the car, there's probably some yelling, maybe some cursing. <laughs> it's probably pretty chaotic and stressful in the car. I said, the stress hormones in your parents would have been through the roof. You're a baby. You're going to react to that stress. So since you were a newborn, one of your earliest experiences as a newborn, your brain was bathed in cortisol, the stress hormone. So she goes, okay, they leave. What I find out later is they wrote the person running the program and said, and they and they said later to the person who ran the program, after that night, when I knew Jesus would catch me, it was the train the whole time. My mother was right. She was healed of lifelong anxiety that night. That's not because of me. I'm simply the instrument. How would I have known those things? That was the Holy Spirit. So it's it's dying to self, saying what you what you receive. But not saying things like, you're going to have twins. Well, what if this woman ever gets pregnant, right? So no mates, dates, or babies. Like we don't, you know, I don't, oh, you're going to meet 
like a tall redhead tomorrow. Oh, I broke up with my nice boyfriend because I met a tall redhead and he's actually a jerk and an abuser. But the lady said, or things like August 14th, like, no, don't, don't do that. But it's when the person feels peace about it. And it's, it's always to benefit the listener. It's never doom and gloom. It's never doom and gloom. So that's how I think you can know is in that. And because God gave that to me and it wound up being something that helped me to know that really is you. And so I think the more you practice that, and there are different classes you can take, like the encounter training, there are some different things out there that can be done to help tap into that to see, is that a gift that the Holy Spirit is allowing you to have in your life? And not and God isn't a gumball machine. Everyone doesn't get all those things because that's not what he call, calls everyone to do. Like, I don't have the gift of prayer tongues yet you could give it to me tomorrow of prayer what i'm sorry prayer tongues a prayer a prayer, a prayer tongue if someone speaks you know in a in a prayer a language that they don't know like if suddenly someone starts speaking in swahili and they don't know swahili and then someone is like you're actually saying the lord god you know whatever beautiful thing how is that possible i can't interpret someone else's prayer tongue but there are people that do have that gift they're just different gifts, and God gives them as he wills, as he needs people to use them. But he's blessed me very much with being able to um, to have those words of knowledge is what we call them. Even though there can be an image, it's still a word of knowledge. Like he may give me a word about someone, and I'll think, huh. And then later, if I meet them, it will come up, and I'll be like, that's why he gave me that word. There was someone once that I knew who I got a very creepy vibe from, and I knew that they wanted me as their therapist, not because it would be holy and I could help them. I knew they wanted to talk about pornography in front of me to watch my reaction. I knew it without knowing a thing about that person. And I kept receiving pornography, pornography, pornography. And it wasn't like, oh, they're struggling and they need help. I help people with that all the time. But I knew something was not of God in this. And I had this repulsion in that moment where I normally don't have that. I think this is a hurting soul and they need to talk about it. And later, things came out into the light that let me know God was protecting me in that moment from not allowing that person into my practice. It would have been really unhealthy and sick. You do practice it in person? Or? Yes, private. Yeah, private. I have a private practice. And then some people want to do telecounseling, just, you know, maybe they live across Texas, someplace really far, or it's just like bad weather or something. And so my, my folks can choose, you know, either or, or they can do a hybrid of the two. And do you have, do you have the couch like, like they do? I, I do. Yeah, I have a couch. Yep. Every, every once in a while we use it as a couch. If someone is, maybe they're by themselves and they want to practice like progressive muscle relaxation, which is a way to relax where you, you know, like you tense up the different, you know, like maybe I tense up my face and I relax it and tense it and you start either top of your head work down your body to your feet, or you can do it the other way. And again, I do it with a lot of Catholic imagery and things. None of the namaste, like we, we don't do any of that sort of thing. And so they may lie down, but it's interesting. Some people sit directly across from me. Some will sit in the middle. Some sit at the seat farthest from me and like keep their purse on their lap all the time. But after so many sessions, I'll usually put it down. Sometimes couples sit right next to each other and hold hands. And then some couples sit at the opposite end. It, it's interesting because Part of being a therapist is noticing what are people doing with their bodies. That's part of it. If they say, I'm happy, 
Uh-huh. Oh, interesting, because you said I'm happy, but then you bowed your head and you like you're about to cry. Or um, he was really mean to me. Wow, he was really mean. You told me the story. That is me, but you were perfectly flat. Yeah, I have no emotion. Huh. I would have a lot of emotion if someone did that to me. So then that helps me to know we got to dig into it. Because at some point in their life, every time that emotion came up, somebody said, stop feeling that way. You're wrong. And after a while, that little part of them just goes dormant. Why? If I'm always told you're wrong, you're happy in this house. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm happy. Oh, dad. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's fascinating. And I couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit. And before any client comes through my doors, I, I always pray. And I got this from a, a wonderful friend of mine who got it from an exorcist. And this is, Lord, I place the cross of Christ between myself and blank, whatever their name is. I pray that only the good come through, you know, come through that cross. I pray that anything bad falls away. And I seal this prayer in the precious blood of Christ. Every prayer needs to be sealed in his name when it's any kind of like spiritual warfare. And so I use that with every client. I use it with girlfriends. I use it with everyone. Because why wouldn't I want a relationship where only good comes through? I would. I always want that, right? And so I pray that, and I'm amazed at the stuff that comes up. You know, a few times a year, I may be stumped at some, something somebody's saying, and I'm thinking, I got nothing. Like, I have no idea how to respond to what they just said. And under my breath, I'll say, Jesus. And then stuff floods out of my mouth. They have a breakthrough, and I'm like, oh, you're good. You're so good, because I had no idea what to say. So the Holy Spirit's always invited in. The, the room has been blessed. The house is blessed. And I think it makes for sacred ground. You know, in, in my, my parents used to be part of a prayer group at mm-hmm. that church. And we and it stopped. It stopped and it for a while. Oh. We haven't did Ooh. sometimes I wonder, I wonder why, you know, it hasn't started. Yeah. It was a long, long time ago. Uh-huh. I think this is inspiring me to ask my priest, you know, what uh I don't know. <laughs> That's why don't we have a prayer group where people pray, you know, um Yeah. It, it would be I think it'd be a beautiful thing. They, the preachers have to be really cautious. It also depends on the bishop. Some bishops are like, you're not bringing that in here because so many people can go off and do things that are inappropriate, right? So they have to follow whatever format they're going to follow, like if it's encounter ministry or some other ministry. So it's a lot to take on because, you know, I, I have worked with people before where they use it and mis, you know, mistreat people with the Holy Spirit told me. And it's like, you just said what to that lady? Like, no, oh, the cancer is your fault. Like, no, why did you say that sort of thing? So, but hopefully your parish can get something going and something holy. And it's amazing to have people pray. And if I go to an event, like there's a women's conference that I can't go to this year because I'm doing my own retreat that weekend and I'm hosting or facilitating. But whenever they go, oh, and at this time, there's going to be prayer teams. I tell my friends like, love y'all. Peace out. Catch you in a minute. I'll be back. And man, I run. I want to hear because they don't know me from Adam. And it's like they're going to be like, oh, that's Tina, the therapist. I'm going to say these kind of things to her. No, I want people who don't know me who can say something. And then I can be the one like, whoa, you just said that. God has been putting that on my heart. That was just confirmation for what I've been thinking about or going. Because I'm a therapist in my office. I'm a therapist right now. I'm not a therapist all the time. I'm just Dana. Just a normal human being who is a sinner and who does stupid stuff and has wounds and hurts from my past too and i also like to receive prayer so i love that 
So, in, so, you, so you mentioned Encounter. Encounter uh, is a type of a format for these kind of prayer groups? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they do like a two-year training on, um, and they do, they do over basically four semesters, and it's to teach people what the church says about healing and prayer groups. Okay. Because, you know, there's, there's two, um, there's sadly too many people out there doing things that are really fringe theology, like Reiki. Like I was going to be part of a cancer support group one time because I'm a two-time cancer survivor, pray, praise God. Right. And some people go, oh, well, well, yeah, God is so good. People, you know, think like, oh, she'll want to be part of it. I really don't because I've talked about it enough. So like, I'm, I'm just, it's, it's like, that's not my thing now. I don't really care about talking about it. But in this group, one of the people that was going to be part of the leadership was saying, we need to do, you know, Reiki training where it's like the energy healing and put your hand like over their liver and oh, uh, no, uh, there's a Vatican document that tells you why that's a big, not only like down or be careful, it says no. I mean, it's very clear of how that can open a portal up and how dangerous it is spiritually. But there was someone promoting it. Tell me some nuns someplace did it. Well, those nuns got shut down later. So mm -hmm. so I think we have to be really careful that we don't get into fringe theology when people are teaching things that that's not what the church says. So earlier you were you mentioned about dying to self. And and I, it's, I, it's one of the very important aspects of, of being a Catholic, learning how to die to self. Mm -hmm. And when I think about how to do that, I come up blank. <laughs> so what does that mean? How can we do that? That's okay. So dying to self is dying to our own desires. Because again, it's very prideful, right? Or it's very, you know, um, it's a lot of vanity to think, oh, I know, I, me, me, me. So it's dying to our own desires. Because again, with concupiscence, we're going to be drawn towards sin because of original sin. So we have to fight against that. So when we die to our own desires, what that means then is we're, we want to trust in God that he knows what's best for us, right? And that he'll take care of us. And that's why I love so much St. Faustina and the divine mercy image, right? Jesus, I trust in you. So like with that story, the train story earlier, I didn't want to say out loud what I had seen because I thought she was going to think, the lady nuts, why are you telling me about this train going out of control? That's nuts. But in that moment, I remember what I was taught. It's not about you. You're the instrument. Basically, get over yourself. Okay. So that's an example in that moment of dying to self. Doesn't mean I always do it so well, because trust me, I don't. Because if not, what we're doing is we're giving into original sin, which is what did they do? They thought they knew best, and we're falling into that. And so we have to trust God. That's why the Ten Commandments matter so much. The Ten Commandments aren't like, you better do these things. I'm the big boss. He's trying to protect us. If you think about like sexual sin, if people kept the sexual act holy in the marital covenant as God designed it to be, we wouldn't have majority of the abortions that happen, right? We So many things wouldn't happen if we obeyed God and it's because he loves us. So it's just like if um, if someone doesn't discipline their children and they grow up, they don't say, it was great in our house. I could do anything. My parent didn't care if I did drugs, stayed out all night, slept with a hundred people. Those people actually feel very unloved. 
it's people that had parents that said, I love you enough to let you be bad at me. Those are the people that feel loved. At the time, they may be annoyed as a teenager, but as Adrian get older, and so it's learning, and that's part of the model, is if we can trust our parents, if they're healthy, people on the pathway to sainthood, not someone who's, you know, disturbed and sick, sick, then that then we can model that. because They model that because we know that's what God does for us. But I know that anytime someone says to me in my practice, I believe in God, but I'm not connected to him. Like there's this disconnect and I don't trust him. I always say, tell me about your father on this earth. Most of the time they'll say, I didn't have a father. He wasn't involved. He left when I was two, you know, something like that. Or dad was in the home, but not engaged with us at all. And again, the daddy's girl, when later they actually don't have any stories of big daddy's girls. And so it goes back to, if you can't trust your earthly father, it's very hard to trust your heavenly father. And so part of dying to self is, what does the church teach about healing? What does the church teach about forgiveness? There's something there or they wouldn't teach it. And that's part of that dying to self is believing something outside of them. God, the Trinity, is there to help them. And so it's it's about humility. So I often will give my homework, uh, my, my client's homework on the litany of humility. And if they already know what it is, they go, ugh. And they're like, oh my gosh, Dana, I can't believe you said that to me. If not, I'll hand them a copy or hand them my iPad to look at it. And they'll be like, this is hard. Yes, it is. But that's how we get to sainthood. Because this earth is all about getting there and who do we get to take with us? We want to see these people in heaven someday. And so we need to be very, um, let's say, radically trusting in their scripture on being childlike. And that's it, is we have to trust that God wants our very best for us. And I often will give people Jeremiah 29, 11, which is all about God knows the plans he has for us. And then one of the best um, scriptures that I've received, that's my very favorite scripture, was years ago working with my own very godly therapist, because I believe every therapist should have a therapist. How can I ask people to share and be vulnerable with me, but I will not go and be vulnerable with someone else? So this woman is of God and knows all my stuff. And at one point years ago, before I was a therapist, I'm rattling off like, wow, all these painful things. And she just looks at me and she goes, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 4610. And I went, yeah, but ugh. Dana, be still and know that I am God. Because I was like a little hamster in a wheel trying to make my life make sense, and it wasn't making sense. That's my favorite scripture now. Because no matter what's happening, be still and give it to God. He's going to handle it. Because we tend to keep a lot of noise going. We tend to keep a lot of electronics on. TV's always in the background. But God speaks to us in silence. And that's one way of dying to self is turning stuff off and being quiet. That's one of the beautiful gifts of adoration. Such a beautiful gift to sit there, you know, with, with God. So humility, acceptance, and silence are essential for dying to self. Absolutely. What about in marriage? How does one die to self there? Okay, that's a great one. Okay, I love that one. Okay, so dying to self doesn't mean I'm always the one who gives in. 
right? My spouse always wins. I always lose. It's really about emotional intelligence. So does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? And does it need to be said by me? Because if, isn't that good? That's some good stuff out there. And again, I don't remember who to cite for that. There's other brilliant people who made that up, but I use that a lot with my clients because people think like, well, I see everything that comes to my mind says who, right? So dying to self is in this moment, do you need to be quiet and just hospitable? Do you just need to be generous? Is your spouse having a rough day, right? Normally your spouse does things your way. Why not let him pick or her pick the restaurant this week? Something as simple as that, but dying to self. And one of the greatest stories that I, I, I've ever heard is, and it, not even a story, it's actually a radio program that I listened to probably 30 years ago. And a radio psychologist of a woman had called in complaining about her husband. It was little stuff like he leaves, you know, the toilet seat up, stuff like that. Nothing big. And I don't remember what the doctor said, but I was in the car a couple weeks later and I heard the doctor said, this woman has written me a note. A woman had, she was a listener. She heard that previous call. Remember the call? She reminded us of the call. And I was like, I remember that call. And she said, the woman wrote this note. You know, my husband would do. He would come home wherever he sat down. He would kick off his shoes and leave them there. And he'd leave. And then she would come, you know, trotting along and uh, almost fall over them. And then he died. I remember when I heard that, it was like I had been punched in the chest. I don't remember if I pulled over or I wanted to pull over. I was so like, I have to sit with that for a moment because she followed it up by saying in this letter, do you know what I give now to have my husband's shoes to fall over? So if you're thinking, oh, I don't she left this out and get her shoes in this, that means you have a spouse. I would much rather have, like, I'm ADD. My husband's really ADD. He allows me to say this. He leaves stuff around the house. So if I ever get judgy and think, oh, look at him leaving that out, I can turn around into the same reel. I left stuff out. But see, I had a good reason why. Well, I left it there because, again, dying to self, getting out of my way, trusting in God as my model, which means I need to trust in my husband. Because part of our job is to help each other get to heaven. So I have to die to self in that moment. Maybe I don't need to say anything. Maybe I need to help my husband put his things away because he's tired. Maybe I need to put my own step away and get out of my own head with, well, I have a good reason why I'm doing this thing. So in marriage, we have to die to self all the time. If not, there's going to be this constant friction. And then it's going to be always, and Gottman would call it negative sentiment override, which means it's like you put on your negative glasses. And I don't care if they bring you a, a cup of hot chocolate. Oh, really? No marshmallows? It doesn't matter what they do. It's a nice thing, but we took it as negative. And still, we want to assume the best about our spouse. And if we're not sure to be, honey, can you help me to understand why you did blank and blank? Most of the time, you probably go, okay, thanks. Every once in a while, you may be like, hey, what? Honey, that, that's not what we agreed to do. And then you can work it out from there. But marriage is all about humility and dying to self if it's going to be happy. And I have a very happy, blessed marriage. Thank you. Oh, my God. Awesome. Yeah, he's my best friend. <laughs> so I know you've, you've done a lot of work with with uh, married couples, and that's what you, you see in the retreats for married couples. We have retreats here for married couples, but what about what about dating couples? You know, I'm 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 still dating. I have a lot of the adults, young adults in our groups are dating. 
And there is, at least down here in Miami, we don't have resources for for couples. Are there retreats for couples, dating couples? How to date in a Catholic way, you know? There are. There are some good books out there that have been written by some really smart people like um, the Everts. They have, you know, a great book. So there's some good things out there. Uh, we have a local retreat, which I'll have to get you information on that later because I don't have it at my fingertips right now. But I think it's really important for them, for couples to look at, like, are there any red flags? Red flag being, we need to run screaming away from this person. Like, this is unhealthy, toxic, and you're not their savior. They already have a savior and they're rejecting that savior or they wouldn't do these outrageous, inappropriate things. Are there yellow flags? Yellow flags are things that you're like, could be an issue. We need to talk through it. And then to look at what are the green flags in relationships? Like, what are some healthy signs? Like, we have a shared faith. We have really healthy communication. We get along well. We discuss and work through conflict because everyone has conflict. I'm actually starting my own podcast of delving into this, this very topic. But one of the things that you and I were talking about earlier off you know, off of our, um, our recording here is that I work with too many couples and I hear it more for women than men. And they'll say, we worked through it. And it'll be that their partner did something absolutely outrageous, cheating, lying, thievery, whatever. Okay. And when I say to them, what do you mean by work through it? They just repeat themselves. Well, we worked through it. Okay. Could you break that down for me? He did X and such. And what did you do? Well, I told him I didn't like it and I won't put up with it. Okay. Did he do it again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done it. He's done it for the last six months. He's done it a bunch of times. Ah, so I wonder why you're putting up with it. No, no. I told him I would not put up with it. Ah, but you just said he's done it a bunch of times. So you are actually putting up with it. But I want to go back to what we talked about earlier. I'll say that to them. I'll say, so tell me. What was the sequence of events of working through it? What did he say to you? What did he promise to do? And then did he have longevity in sticking to those promises? And they will just look at me and blink and repeat again. We just worked through it. So here's what that means. What that means is this isn't a married couple that needs to figure out how do we, how do we stay married? How, how do we do it? That's not what this is. These are people who are dating. And what it means is they simply quit talking about it. They lay down, they think a boundary. No, because the person keeps crossing the boundary. So they did lay down a boundary that they're going to stick to with them. And it means that they simply talked about the next thing. Oh, we're going to a movie. We're going to your friend's wedding next week. We're going to go eat some tacos. They didn't work through it. So I'm amazed at how often people say these things that they like very strongly but in the end, there's nothing there. It's just emptiness. It's like when someone apologizes, I'm sorry, okay? That's not actually apology, right? I'm so sorry. It hurts me so much. I hurt you. <laughs> but they did it again. Yeah, they did it the very next week. An apology without change, consistent longevity, that kind of change is manipulation. That's what that is. If, if they're saying things to you and they don't make sense, you're being lied to or manipulated and or manipulated. And if something doesn't make sense, I don't mean like, you know, rocket science, you know, that doesn't make sense to me because my brain, I don't get that. But if what they're saying, you're thinking, wait, why would you do that? That I don't, what? And, but you were supposed to be at your house at two, but you weren't there till set. 
what? You're being lied to or manipulated because otherwise it would make sense. And when that keeps happening, you need to be aware of that because what happens is when people get married, it's very, very rare. I mean, infinitesimal amount of people that say, we were golden, put the ring on my finger, a week after the wedding, it was like, who are you? I'm married to a stranger. And you find out that they're a sociopath scamming you and taking all your money. That, okay. Scary. Right. It, it is scary, right? It, it can happen. But almost every single time, there are red flags. And I'll say, well, what did you think about, you know, he said or she said? Because sometimes it's the band. He can get bamboozled that way. I thought it would get better. I thought children would help. I thought they really loved me. They say all the time, I love you. And, but that was like a mean, I love you. Yeah, but he says all the time he loves me, but he doesn't act loving towards you. Again, how do you reconcile those two things? And that's when they go, and they have to come to it on their own. If not, they're just going to run away from therapy or come back again, and they need counseling. You know, I, I, I ask that because I it's we have a lot of dating couples, and it's hard, it's hard to date. And mm-hmm. it, and there is a big difference between dating as a Catholic couple who has the the, the, the mindset of like, okay, we're doing this because eventually we want to get married from uh-huh. from what you see, you know, this, this, uh-huh. it's Miami. So everybody is doing everything, you know? So, so especially with these new, these young adults that go through the retreat and they they have the encounter with Christ, well, we have to also teach them how it is to be a good Christian, a good Catholic. So how do you date uh-huh. as a Catholic? You know, what are the right ways to do it? And I'm, I don't have the answers, but, uh-huh. but, um, but I think it's good to, it will be good to have something available for, for young dating couples or Catholic couples that are dating. Absolutely. I think, I think it's very needed because depending on what their background is, maybe their parents were converts, maybe they converted, their parents haven't converted. They could come from all sorts of backgrounds and maybe one home is very devout. But I think, again, there are so many good resources out there in the Catholic world, but to not follow what the secular world says. Well, we have to sleep together first. If not, how we know if we really, you know, like each other. Like, that's not the point of the marital act, right? Like, nope. Or to know up front, hey, um, I, you know, I plan to keep myself pure until my wedding, right? Or I was impure in my past, but I'm chaste today. So for like the last six months or a year, I've been chaste and I, I don't, I don't do those things. So to know up front, we can't be alone because we're very attracted to each other. So we just can't be alone. We can't go park out over here down the road. We're going to have a makeout session, which is going to make us want to go towards sex. So you want someone in the end who brings you closer to God, right? And you want someone that you feel good about yourself and you don't leave the the date, the the relationship or like the, you know, an evening together feeling bad about you. I feel stupid around that person. They're so much smarter than I am. They're so much better educated. You should feel good about you as in, not some whole self-esteem thing, but as in, I like me when I'm with this person. I'm authentically me. Because if I act a certain way and I try to be a little mispious and I'm saying things that I think the guy, if I was single, you know, was dating, would like, um, then I'm really not being me. And so it's not the fullness and we need, they need to know who we truly are. If not, who are they marrying? And it's not fair. I acted like a goody two-shoes, but then once we got married, I didn't like it. I think part of it is it doesn't mean the person is a bad person. 
they could just be, you know, not the right person for you. If they say, oh, I want to live in Alaska, out like in the back 40, and I will have an igloo for a home, and I want to raise wolves on the side. If somebody said it to me, I'd be like, God bless you, and we'll be really good friends, and we'll visit you, but I will not be living. I mean, I just couldn't imagine that, right? Or if someone says, um, you know, I, I, I believe in abortion. You're going to marry this person that believes in abortion? Um, I know many couples that had abortions after they were married. Well, he put so much pressure on me. He said, we can't have another kid right now. It will hurt our marriage. We need it. We, we just got married. We have to get to know each other. That's, that's not a good thing. So sometimes it's just incompatibility. You, you remind me of one of, one of my older guests. We, we talked about marriage. And he said that dating time is thinking time. Adding to that... I tell, you know, people sometimes that we, your dating life is a sample of your marriage life. Mm -hmm. So if That's you don't right. like what you have now, it's not going to get better because, because you, you know, you get married and you mm -hmm. face life together, mm -hmm. challenges are going to come your way and then That's how right. are you going to deal with that? So you're going to have your, yeah, of course you could have a beautiful life or whatever, mm -hmm. but if you're, if your dating life is already mm -hmm. hard. Yep. It's just, it's not going to be, you're going to get married all of a sudden. Yay. We're good. <laughs> exactly. You don't have cake and the ceremony, all that. And then that, that's it. Glitter it. No, it, it's hard work. So if um, it's like, okay, let's say there's some conflict. It's normal to have conflict. That is normal to not agree on everything. You, you were two different people, but it's how do you go about it? Is there a name calling? Is there harshness? Is there a lot of generalizations? Is there cruelty or is there, I'm sorry for my part, I, I had a tone and I rolled my eyes at you and, well, honey, thank you for that. But, you know, I came in and I was accusing you of this and you hadn't done that. I needed a snack. But yet I put my, you know, how do you, how quickly do you resolve things? And do you have the same basic viewpoint on parenting on, um, I mean, you need to talk about sex, even though hopefully you're not having sex. There still needs to be a talk about Kind of how often would do you think would be normal? Oh, every day, twice a day? I don't know if I can survive that. I mean, those are the things that have to be have to be discussed. Or, hey, I like to look at pornography when we when we're gonna be physical. That's the only way I can be physical. Anyone who has an active addiction is not ready to be married. They need to go through treatment to get healing. Because I cannot tell you how many women I know in my personal life, my professional life, and different groups I'm in where pornography ruins their marriage and it's so so painful so it needs to be worked through that's really important before they get married and that may mean they may need some individual counseling maybe they need a spiritual director maybe they need to go talk to their really amazing priest i like that yeah no i agree i think pornography creates a yeah. fake i tell i tell people it's not real not only it's are not you desensitizing true. yourself as a as a person as a man mm -hmm. You are you are creating expectations that are not real, and then they get disappointed because they're expecting costumes. And okay, nurses don't come up to you wearing a micro mini skirt and crawl it, and that doesn't happen. So what's interesting is a man. It's not as women are also involved in pornography. It goes both ways nowadays, which is really right, you know, startling, but it's reality. But they have a spouse down the hallway that has you know a warm bed, a warm body, but instead. They're focused on this or they come to their spouse and want their spouse to do stuff. And their spouse is like, 
no, I'm, I am not comfortable with that. And it's because they got it from pornography, right? And that's really sad. And that makes that person feel used. And as we know from theology of the body, we're to use objects, not people. And so it's really important that that is discussed up front because you don't want to start your marriage with grounds for annulment already in the mix. It's like starting with a, um, it's like having a prenup, right? That's saying that you're already leaning towards divorce. So if the person is active in addiction and things and wants you to do certain things, you don't want to go into marriage with that because there's literally grounds for annulment. You don't want that. You want a healthy, holy marriage that can grow. And again, the goal is to get each other and those children to heaven. That's the goal. And, and nothing is more selfish than pornography. It's all about self-satisfaction, degrading the other person. And it, it's very sad. And when I, when I taught high school, I had this, this um, young man come in and these two guys came in and one of them is elbowing his friend. He's like, it's a big day for him. And I'm like, what's up, guys? Like, what's a big day? And he's like, he's 18. But he was saying this very, like, but a big but a boom kind of way. Like I was supposed to figure out like, so I'm like, hey, happy birthday. I'll call the kid John for John Dez. Like, happy birthday, John. He's like, you know what that means, miss? And I'm like, what? And they're used to me teaching these little life lessons because I was like a psychology teacher. So I could work in faith-based stuff. I just didn't use faith-based words. And I said, what? And the kid, you know, has his head down. And he's all sheepish. And, and his friend goes, he can now go to strip clubs. Oh, Oh, huh. Okay. And every kid in the room, you could have heard a pin drop. They're all like, what's Mrs. Nygaard going to say to this? Because they know I'm this, you know, devout Catholic. And so I said, well, I mean, I mean, that's okay if you're okay with what it means. And, you know, they're teenage boys that they, they took the bait. What do you mean? What, what, what it means? Right. And I go, well, <clears throat> I said, um, so you wouldn't be embarrassed to go there? No, man, it'd be cool. So he was like being all macho. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I said, so let's pretend you were part of a reality show. You wouldn't mind if there were cameras capturing you going into the strip club. No, man, that'd be cool. So he does his own macho thing. His friend's laughing. Kids are still staring at me like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I said, oh, I said, you wouldn't be embarrassed? No, no, it'd, it'd be cool. You know that you pay those women to pretend they like you, right? Okay. So his, his face starts to fall at that point, okay? He's like, oh. I said, so whenever they're over there doing whatever they do and you're giving them money, they then go to the back and talk about the jerks out front that believe them. Okay, so he's halfway, one foot in going, one foot, you know, not going. Yeah, I can see this on his face. Okay, so I then said, and then there's the other point. I'm just like, hard. what's the other point? And go, well, you know that at best, at least 85% of the women they're dancing have been sexually violated in their lives. And because they, no one respected their bodies, they don't respect their own bodies. That's the only way they know how to get something out of life. So as long as you're okay with, you know that, you're paying women to pretend to like you, but they actually don't like you, and they're laughing at you. And as long as you're okay with reoffending and reabusing traumatized victims, I mean, you know, you're you're you're, you're an 18 year old man. Nothing else was said. Weeks go by. It's the end of school. 
of kids come in for finals. So it's like a couple hours of a final and then they're gone and you don't see them anymore. So he comes in, he puts a card on my desk. I start coming. He goes, no, miss, don't open it until I leave. Okay. So I have to sit there for two hours while this kid takes his final and I'm dying to open it. I still have that note to this day. Handwritten note from a boy. What boy writes a handwritten note? And it says, thank you. And I get Holy Spirit goosebumps. Thank you, Lord, for that. He goes, thank you for saying what you said. I want you to know what you said changed my life. I never went and I never will. Thank you, Jesus, for that. God gave me a sassy mouth to be able to say those things to these children because it was off the cup. I had no idea. But, But I thought, I love this young man. I love all these children. They became my children. I don't want them going down that path. Like, think what that would have done to his life, let alone what it would have been and would have happened to those women that were being used. And we know now from like the sound of freedom, how much of that comes up, you know. Sound of freedom is awesome. Oh, such a great movie. Oh my gosh, so great. Love all of them. They're fantastic. So Dana, this has been great uh, talking to you about your work, what you're doing in the Catholic space is amazing. And you have given us some great advice from forgiveness, which is, which is, I think, very important for me. Um, and and then what you said about, you know, that forgive the lack of forgiveness of self was a pride issue, meaning that I think I know more than God. And I think that was, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the takeaway for me. Today. Awesome. Thank you. And we have one last question that we'd like to end the show with. What is the, your favorite part of your faith? Okay. Okay. That's a great question. Okay. I would say the universality of our faith. It doesn't matter if I'm in Mexico, if I'm in Jamaica, wherever I am in the world, even though I may not understand the language of the mass, it is for, it is for everyone. It's the same mass that Christ instituted. It's maybe different words, but it's still the, our father. I love that i love that wherever i go it would be the same scriptures different homily but the same scriptures no other church in the world has that no one has that and i just i love it in the sacraments the sacraments that god allows us to be married and receive this extra grace for being married when we are simple where i'm simple because i'm also a sinner that there's the you know the sacrament of reconciliation i just I love it. The Eucharist, you know, right? We have this beautiful revival going on our church now, right? That we can go and sit with Jesus. Sit with Jesus. He is there and we can receive him. I just, I, I love our faith. I'm in love with being Catholic and I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine not being Catholic and not having the fullness of her faith. So um, I'm grateful to Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Dana, for sharing your story and what you do with us. It's been great having you. Thanks. My pleasure. It's been a blast, and I appreciate all your time and help.